Jaeger, and Coke. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 182. So I'm going to dive right in this week. First up, we have a fun little story concerning the delightfully annoying Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is from a Patheos article written by the friendly atheist himself, Hemant Mehta. Did I just butcher his name? Probably. Uh, the article is entitled, Gwyneth Paltrow is now promoting skincare products that have been meditated over. I said meditated over, not master... Raining in the sixth sense of humor. We're not even a minute in yet. Uh, but anyway, back to the article. Here we go. Last year, we wrote about actress Gwyneth Paltrow because she was promoting the idea of women getting their vaginas steam... This isn't me. This is them. Vaginas steam clean to balance their hormone levels. As everyone who knows things pointed out, the procedure won't accomplish anything. Now she's back with even more pseudoscience. The latest goop... And they're typing it like that's an official publication. It looks like italicized. The latest Goop newsletter promotes a skincare product that supposedly works because it's quote-unquote treated to extensive prayer, meditation, and music before ever appearing on shelves. Because we all know applying lotion to your body is pointless unless it has been treated with meditation and chants. Well, Hemet's a little uh, catty in this one. Uh, it's about doing anything to increase the energy of the products founder Ani de Mamiel. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's, it's like a fancy French version of mammal says uh, in quotes, we put crystals around the oils as we macerate. I was almost going to make another joke, but macerate the herbs. We play music. As we add the base oils, we use more music, crystals, and meditation. Then we add the flower essences. They sit out with music, too. She estimates the whole process takes about six to eight weeks. She blends the oils the way a perfumer blends notes. In the blending room, we say blessings of love and grace and gratitude. I add the oils in a certain order, and I chant as I blend them. I like to burn frankincense as I do it to clear the room. It's sacred, energizing, and such a pure smell. Each product has its own chant. Once the blend is ready, I meditate. Usually three words of intention come up for me in that meditation, and I like to put those on the label. Then it macerates for two... Oh, you must be sore after macerating for two months. That's a very long way of saying, give us money for this bullshit product, and that's... uh. That's the author swearing, not me. Ruth Graham at Slate wisely points out 0.34 ounces of De Mamiel's Altitude Oil is a mere $44. But take heart, the snake oil is free and it's glorious. And then it continues. And then just to add another dose of nonsense to the mix, Paltrow told the New York Times her flight rituals. I drink tons of water and I have a vitamin sachet. Is that the right pronunciation? That I put it in it. Also, I moisturize my skin and put on a mask. I try not to eat rubbish either. I'll pack salad and fruit. If I'm going on an overnight flight, I'll drink whiskey or a glass of wine and then go to sleep. But on day flights, I'll try not to drink. When I land, I try to find a sauna to sit in for 20 minutes to help me sweat out all the germs from the plane. And then this is the author commenting, I've been in a lot of airports. I've never landed and thought to myself, let me go find a sauna. I was sitting next to mere mortals. Someone help. 
What's amazing is that Paltrow, like Jenny McCarthy, is selling this drivel and people are buying it. Their gullible followers are immune to facts, science, and common sense. At least with Paltrow, they're only throwing away their money. Well, um, as far as her flight rituals go, I didn't really see anything wrong with any of that. It actually sounded like uh, Mado was going out of his way to pick on her a little. Um, she drinks water takes vitamins, moisturizes her skin, tries not to eat rubbish. Even the sauna. I've never been in a sauna, but I don't see anything particularly wrong with using one, uh, especially if you're, you know, you're tired from a long flight or something. <clears throat> but I think this is one of those things where maybe at first you say, hey, in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. Who cares if some rich people want to waste their money on some high-end nonsense. But I guess I have two concerns. Firstly, I think it's irresponsible for high-profile people to support this kind of thing, because whether they realize it or not, they're promoting pseudoscience. And my second concern is, yeah, it doesn't matter if rich people waste their money on this stuff, but our run-of-the-mill people being, uh, you know, forget it. If you're willing to believe this garbage, you probably deserve to get built. Uh, that wasn't nice. I know, I know. And I should probably be more sensitive or compassionate. I don't know um, if she'd want me saying this or talking about it, but my elderly mother got ripped off by, uh, is it Kevin Trudeau? Yeah, Kevin Trudeau, not to be confused with the Canadian prime minister. His last name is also Tr Trudeau, uh, and who also creeps me out. But anyway, uh, Kevin Trudeau is a notorious con man who's had a late night infomercial racket going for years now. He's been in trouble with the law multiple times, and I don't know how he keeps getting back on TV, but my mother ordered some kind of natural cures book from him, and they actually did, did this to a lot of people. First, it took forever for her to receive the worthless book. She had to keep on nagging them. And to add insult to injury, they double-billed her. But I think she was able to successfully fight it, but it seems that was their M.O. They would double bill people, and then after a prolonged period of time, you might or might not end up actually receiving the B.S. book you paid for, or should I say paid twice for. And if you think I'm slandering the guy or whatever, or if you don't know much about him, look him up on Wikipedia or Google him, or you can probably look him up with the Better Business Bureau. He's done infomercials on everything from natural cures to financial or real estate stuff. And uh, I think he's actually served time before. I know he's been in trouble with the law multiple times. But anyway, next up, it seems astrophysicist uh, slash science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson has gotten himself into more Twitter trouble. So here's the uh, quote or the tweet. And he said uh, verbatim, if there were ever a species for whom sex hurt, it surely went extinct long ago. So when I first read it, I got the gist loud and clear. He's saying that since sexual reproduction is how we perpetuate or propagate the species, creatures who found sex too painful to tolerate would have died off because they were unable or unwilling to reproduce. And I think there's a really valid point to what he's saying. It explains why we're so interested in sex, why it feels so good. It's nature's way of trying to make sure we reproduce. But there are some exceptions, and, and people online were quick to correct Neil. A number of people tweeted him directly with uh, examples of animals who have painful <laughs> sex. Um, but I'm looking at a Wired article right now that lists a number of different animals, and there's this cute little mousy-looking thing, uh, the the antikinis or 
Antichinus or something like that. A-N-T-E-C-H-I-N-U-S. It says, uh, it's oh, it's, it's not a rodent, it's a marsupial. It's a marsupial that lives in Australia. Its males have so much sex that they bleed internally and go blind, and their hair falls out and they die. It's interesting how they say only the males have so much sex. Are they having sex with each other, or are they super promiscuous? And then cats, everyone probably knows, or most of you, that cats have some kind of weird spines or barbs on their penises, not to get too graphic. And we've probably all heard the kind of jarring sound at night of uh, cats mating. Cats have barbed penises that scrape up the ladies' insides, something fierce. Penal, penile spines. Praying mantis. Female praying mantises and a lot of female spiders eat the males after mating. Ducks. Female duck vaginas corkscrew in the opposite direction of male duck's penises. This is apparently evolution's way of keeping the males out because male ducks are... <laughs> the, this is the article, not me, because male ducks are assholes. Anglerfish, bed bugs. Bed bugs are traumatic inseminators. Wow. Uh, I, there's like a death metal song or title or something in there somewhere. Males pierce the females' abdomens with their sharp penises and inseminate them. People. People are on this list. Everything's not always awesome down there, you guys. Human sex can be painful for both parties, and it's treatable disorder called dyspareunia or something like that. Yet somehow we're still here. Yeah, it is kind of weird how, in some cases, evolution hasn't managed to weed out the painful aspect or even deadly aspect of uh, reproduction uh, for certain species. But speaking of people, I, I was going to say, hey, Neil, have you ever had someone on top of you and suddenly your thing bends? Pretty painful. Damn, that was too much information, wasn't it? Uh, this seems to be a reoccurring theme on the show. But moving on, time for one last story. And this is another one from Patheos. It involves a man in Germany fined for blasphemy. Yes, blasphemy in the year 2016. Okay, and this, uh, as I said, from Patheos, written by Matthew Facciani, I think it is. Facciani. German man is fined for having blasphemous bumper stickers. In Munster, Germany, Albert Voss was fined over 500 for having blasphemous bumper stickers on his car. Germany is one of the few Western European countries that has enforceable blasphemy laws. Not only was Mr. Voss fined, his license was suspended. Some of his bumper stickers read, The church is looking for modern advertising ideas. I can help. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one, Jesus, our favorite artist, hanging for 2,000 years, and he still hasn't got cramp. These are really bad bumper stickers. <laughs> What's the cramp thing got to do with the artist thing? I thought maybe they're going to go like for something like he was hanging like a piece of art, but... Um, let's make a pilgrimage with Martin Luther to Rome. Kill Pope Francis. The Reformation is cool. Then that's another one that's just kind of brazen, but there's no real humor to it, but it seems like it's trying to be funny. And then it continues, okay, I can see the kill Pope Francis one being pretty problematic, but why not just call it hate speech? As Hemant Mehta points out, where do we draw the line? According to the German law, blasphemy is illegal when it is capable of disturbing the peace. But how can we really determine that? Blasphemy laws are quite antiquated, and I was surprised to learn Germany still enforces them. Hopefully they update their laws soon. Well, I concur with that. As I said, you know, it's the year 2016, and in a relatively progressive 
European country. We're still worrying about blasphemy laws. Okay, so I didn't want to bore you guys by issuing some corrections or clarifications at the top of the show, so I guess I'll bore you now instead. So first up, in episode 181, I quickly rattled off a list of peoples who had conquered or oppressed the Jews in antiquity. To put it into context, I was discussing what I referred to as the tragic history of the Jewish people. Well, I lumped Persia in with the group of conquerors and oppressors. Even at the time, I felt like I should have brought some nuance into the conversation, but I was trying to keep things brief. It's true that after the Persians defeated the Babylonians, the Jewish people did find themselves under Persian rule, but comparatively, the Jews had it a lot better under the Persians than under the Babylonians. The Persians had a rather enlightened view on religious freedom and self-governance, and Jews who had been living in captivity and exile under the Babylonians were allowed to return home under Persian rule. So perhaps I'm just being neurotic, but I felt a need to make that clarification. Don't want any ancient Persians mad at me. Oh yeah, then the special on leprechauns I just published. That sounds kind of funny. I briefly talk about how mythical beings like fairies, sprites, brownies, and leprechauns probably have their roots in the pagan past, and they may even be spirits and gods that got kind of demoted following the spread of Christianity. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, but the topic is still a bit murky. I, I think it's true in some cases, but apparently not in others. In the case of Leprechaun specifically, there's a thought that they're a remnant, so to speak, of the Tuat de Danon, the, the race of gods in Irish mythology. In the case of brownies, these diminutive beings that are said to take care of household chores at night in exchange for gifts or food, uh, I've heard it posited at least once that they might be demoted household deities, gods, often goddesses specifically, who were gods of a hearth and home. Fairies are a bit more difficult. I thought the same principle might apply to them, but I was recently reading an article that was saying that in the Victorian era, writers supposedly had a habit of using fairies as stand-ins for gods in the literature of the time. And this may have led to a misconception that fairies are demoted pagan deities. But it really wouldn't surprise me at all if many of these fairy-like creatures are echoes of the pagan past, echoes of animistic spirits like dryads and nymphs, etc. Then there's an old Christian theory that fairies are demoted angels who got shut out of heaven... Uh, but weren't evil enough for hell, or uh, even a weirder belief that they were spirits of the dead. But I could talk about this stuff for days, so I'll cut myself off. Oh yeah, there was one more correction of sorts. I was reading a quote by a 19th century author, D.R. McAnally, in which he's describing the appearance of the leprechaun, and it's from his book, Irish Wonders. And I think I kind of butchered it. I may have gotten one or two words wrong in my reading of it may have made things a bit confusing. So I'm going to take another crack at it now. He is about three feet high and is dressed in a little red jacket or roundabout, with red breeches buckled at the knee, gray or black stockings, and a hat cocked in the style of a century ago over a little old withered face. Round his neck is an Elizabethan ruff, and frills of lace are at his wrists. On the wild west coast, where the Atlantic winds bring almost constant rains, he dispenses with ruff and frills and wears a frieze overcoat over his pretty red suit, so that unless on the lookout for the cocked hat, you might pass a leprechaun on the road and never know it's himself that's in it at all. So that's it. So uh, thanks for listening, and you guys know the drill, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. You might be watching the YouTube version now. If you want to throw me a few bucks because you dig what I do, 
you can use the PayPal widget on the Podbean page. Just go to Podbean, look for The Week in Doubt. Or you can go to patreon.com slash theweekindoubt and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month and quit anytime you want. All right, until next week.